0: Thanks for the introduction, Dominic. It's been a great day already. And I'll say, um, it started a few hours ago, actually. Did anyone listen to the Louis B. Free show today that we were on, anybody? Okay, so that wasn't the reason why you came. (laughs) You already knew about this event, which is great. Um, We had a good conversation this morning about how um, Youngstown's identity, the challenges it faces are in some ways similar to Cleveland. We're not the same place, but there's some uh, similarities and there's, there's this intertwining of the changes underway in Cleveland and in Youngstown, the fact that we're all in transition, and this weather that we have that has been uh, variable for a long time. So what I hope to do today is to tease out ways that that uh, identity can be intertwined and actually make it a good thing. Um, I also intend that this will be a conversation, Uh, so at any point if there's a question, just feel free to raise your hand. I like the fact that this started off with introductions of all of us, so we know our backgrounds. Um, So please feel free to raise your hand, and then at the end I'm going to leave ample time so we can have a conversation, maybe write down some ideas that all of you have in the room. Um, First of all, a little bit about our background. Some of you may know this, then, uh, since you've seen a previous presentation and you're a part of the work. But I'm the Associate Director at the Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative. We're part of the College of Architecture and Environmental Design, which is based on the main campus in Kent. But our office is in Playhouse Square in downtown Cleveland. And as you may have heard, um, we got some festivities going on in town. Um, Actually, we're one block away from the the critical uh, zone where no one's allowed in. Um, You know, no tennis balls, no backpacks. Um, you can bring your guns but anyway um, <laughs> uh, but we're, we're close by there so the fact that we've kind of coordinated some off-site uh, visits this week and that that events going on might have some correlation there um, but we kind of do three things to kind of keep it simple one is research so we focus on issues that we think are coming up down the line for other um, private sector firms, design architecture firms, communities, and one of those being winter cities, we believe. Second of all, we work for clients. We do projects for uh, cities, for organizations, for community development corporations, all throughout northeast Ohio, as far east as Conneaut, working out there, and just yesterday I was in Sandusky for a project that we're working on. Um, And then third of all, we teach in the graduate program, and I think there was a really great coalescence of all these things in the fall when we met here in Youngstown, and we had over 20 students, Committing three full days um, and their energy and time towards uh, improvements and recommendations for the city in partnership with many of you that attended that charrette. Here are the objectives for today. And again, I hope this is a conversation. Here's what I hope to achieve: one that will identify some of the economic, health, and social reasons of uh, why winter design considerations are important. The first step is why even bother with this stuff? Like why even spend any uh, attention or time on it rather than just just kind of going the way things are going, (laughs) let's just leave it be and kind of hope for summer, half the year. Second of all, uh, learn what specific climatic conditions make Northeast Ohio unique. The fact that we're not like other winter cities, we're not like uh, some other Canadian cities that might actually seem more harsh. There's actually some challenges that we face that are distinct, and I think we need to address that in our design solutions. Third, um, I'd like to review some emerging strategies, ideas that we've collected over the past three years now, um, since starting the uh, Coldscape's project in 2013, we've collected a lot of ideas through a competition and other means that I'd love to share with you today, and then last of all, and maybe most importantly, I'd love to discuss with all of you what are the opportunities that are relevant to Youngstown, you know, so we'll show some ideas from around the world, but um, these all kind of take on their own life and emotional resonance and meaning through the lens and the values of Youngstown. Okay, so a little background. How did we get into this? How did I you know, even get interested in the winter design stuff? Um, well, one, I grew up in Cleveland, so I dealt with winter. But kind of fast forwarding to my professional career, uh, we started a program called Pop-Up City back in 2007 in Cleveland. And that project was focused on temporary ephemeral events that help activate vacant properties in Cleveland. And one of those first projects was Leap Night. It occurred on Leap Night in 2008 that concept was let's activate this stretch of the river that is underused, has a real negative stigma around it. Uh, most people, when they talked about the flats, they kind of said, oh, isn't that the place where someone fell in the river? Um, and at the same time, this was a site that was uh, had de- development imminent. Everybody at the time thought uh, that East Bank Flats development was going to happen within six months after this event. So we saw this kind of short window, This um, Time frame to activate the space and kind of build some positive memories around it, do something exciting before the new development comes into place. Well, it turns out um, there was this uh, economic issue that kind of hit the country, <laughs> and the project didn't happen after all, but uh, we didn't know that at the time. So we were excited to use it to program it. And what we did was we brought in, um, through a partnership with Boston Mills Brandywine, the ski resort brought down um, snowboarding ramps and they had a rail competition where kids from the suburbs that you know again if they've heard of the flats at all they probably never went there before but if they heard about it it was probably yeah that's where that guy fell in the river and died um, so they came out they participated in the snowboard competition we had a dead tree Christmas uh, uh, forest this happened again in February so we went around and collected uh, Christmas trees that people put on their lawns in the suburbs and set them up and created a big forest along the river. We had a competition with a video game projected on the wall. Anyway, the idea was something totally unexpected, uh, something that just had this uh, fun and um, the experience of this this is a short period of time, let's enjoy it, let's get critical mass. And that whole week leading up to this Friday's event, I was out there with a snow shovel, getting blocks of ice. I mean, it was a foot of snow on the site. Friday comes around, the event was like, I think at six or so, and the temperature just started going up and up and up. (laughs) It was 20 degrees all week the day of that Friday. 30, 40, 50. Yeah, I, think, I think it hit 60 degrees that day. And, you know, we're thinking, are you serious? You know, we have these blocks of ice. They're melting. We have lights inside of it. There's pools of water. People still had a great time. They still loved it. In some ways, maybe it's better because people felt more comfortable outside. But on the other hand, it was a real lesson that in Cleveland, if you plan these events, you can do whatever you want to kind of coordinate for it. But Mother Nature is going to go one way or another. And we just built this attitude that the show's going to go on and we're going to learn to create events or projects that respond to any condition and it started uh, getting us to think about you know what is the design response in this climate you know this is a a unique circumstance where we don't know the weather so I did a little research and I found um, you know started looking up so what are the freeze-thaw cycles across the country because that's what we're dealing with you know you just get this tipping point above freezing and the whole climate changes things melt you're on the other side things freeze right found out that in Cleveland, we're actually in one of these zones that has a really high freeze-thaw cycle, um, a number of freeze-thaw cycles. So if you can see that red area, we're in this about 90 to 100, sometimes even more than 100 freeze-thaw cycles in a year. And if you think we have 365 days a year, that's a lot of cycles throughout that time. Interestingly, if you look a little further north, up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the other states that we know of as winter cities or winter states, they actually have less freeze-thaw cycles, and that turns out it leads to different design solutions as a result of that for one when you're planning events that are ice carving festivals or snow mound building festivals you have a little bit more um, um, you have less risk that the weather's going to change on you so you have a little more confidence that you're going to have freezing temperatures especially if you go further north in Canada like Winnipeg where they have a, a warming hut competition uh, the other thing is when you're maintaining things like bicycle lanes in Minneapolis it's common for them to not plow all the snow out they just um, groom the snow on the bike routes so that it's packed snow because it doesn't freeze. You know, So if it melts at night, it's going to freeze in the morning probably, which happens around our area. But there, it doesn't freeze so you don't get the ice layer on top of the snow as often. So for them, they can change their practices and just ride on top of the snow without a problem. Um, so anyway, I think uh, first point is understanding what's unique about our circumstance, that we have this fluctuation variability We're not going to change it over the long term climate change is probably going to make our area warmer but the variability is still an issue that we need to deal with the next kind of response you know with uh, the pop-up city work was you know that these ephemeral temporary events are maybe uh, a strategy you know we don't have to think about long-term projects but something that happens for a day and you know maybe it can be based on weather so if it's the temperature is just right the people are ready and we've built a community we can deploy a project at a moment's notice um, one project that was ephemeral like this in the, uh, another pop-up city project was Bridge BridgeMix um, and this was a transformation of uh, a pedestrian walkway over a highway in Cleveland into this really comfortable living room that had Miles Davis playing on a record player. People were hanging out. We had uh, astronomers come out from the Natural History Museum and believe it or not even in urban areas you can get really great views of things like Jupiter on bright days with a nice uh, telescope. So again it's giving people a really unexpected experience that I think is what urbanity is about. It's unexpected experiences, adjacencies that you can get within a walking, um, comfortable walking distance that is really difficult to get in other ways. Um, Another project that we helped with that kind of again built this um, interest in winter cities was the Bright Winter Festival, which started off in 2010 in Cleveland. Has anyone heard of the Bright Winter Festival? Just curious. Okay, one, two, three, three, at least four people. Okay, that's cool. Started in 2010, it was actually a group of uh, two graduate students from Case Western Reserve University that are part of their graduate council said, hey, we want to do an event at the end of the year that's customary, but we don't want to do something like others have done before. We want to do it actually in winter, (laughs) and our concept is we want to kind of take on the doldrums of winter. What do you think? Can you help us out? They knew about our pop-up city work, so we helped them with the idea of creating a temporary event, helped them select a location. Uh, (laughs) Actually I uh, worked on that logo down there that's actually still being used today. And that first year, you know, it's kind of creating an image, uh, a kind of, you know, kind of mood board for what this Bright Winter Festival could be. The first year, it was a few hundred people that showed up. You see that bottom uh, right corner image, hanging out again in the flats. <laughs> turned out underneath the bridge, uh, we had some lights and uh, inflatable cubes. If you can see in the top right corner, um, that kept the bands warm <laughs> while they were playing because their fingers would freeze. You know, if it was because uh, it was a cold day and um, they played inside this bubble so you had this band in the bubble the music's blasting outside so um, it was a really kind of uh, awesome experience although it was for like a few hundred people now this event has exploded Um, last year they held held it every year since then and now they after going up into ohio city for the past few years for the event they've outgrown ohio city actually Uh, and they're back in the flats where they have huge uh, spaces for over twenty thousand people that come uh, in mid-February for an event that has food sales, really um, headlining bands from across the country that come to this festival. It's kind of known as a music festival, but again, you pack the streets with people. Um, this last year, it didn't snow, <laughs> so you see snowflakes on the walls. But people had to be prepared for all kinds of weather. And again, it's a learning lesson. It's a lesson for Cleveland. It could be a winter festival, sort of, but there may have be snow on the ground. It may be fifty, sixty degrees. So how do you plan for a festival that isn't contingent on Uh, having snow mounds in order to have fun Um, again this is a pop-up city event where we transformed the top level of parking garage on Euclid Avenue into uh, the hip deck and the hip deck refers to the old hippodrome theater that used to be there before it was a parking garage Um, so for the evening we had music performances opera singers big inflatable art installations uh, people dressed up in like jackets like they're um, Um, helping you to your seat in a a theater. So it was a way of hearkening back, kind of reliving in a fresh way the past for today. And again, giving people this experience of an ephemeral one night experience that you have to be there, it's not gonna be here tomorrow, sort of a Shangri-La feeling. So this is again, something that uh, we've been thinking about when it comes to winter cities. Okay, so stepping back and thinking like, how does this fit into the big picture of what we do at the CUDC? I like to think of it this way as this graphic. Um, We take the local culture that exists and then reinterpret it in a way that continues to build on the culture. Um, So I find a really interesting way to do this is to identify what are the barriers or constraints, the opposition forces in your city, and use those in a sort of judo move, let's say, (laughs) to activate an idea, because then there's a power in that design. You know, it's something unexpected, people didn't think that something was possible, and that gives us strength and an interest to the project. So as you can see here, some other ones that are grayed out might be, we have this identity crisis. Who are we? What kind of city are we? Are we the Rust Belt? Are we a Great Lakes city? What are, you know, and so taking on those challenges can enable us to cultivate new stories and then build a new culture, depopulation. One response, as you can see down there, lightly, is temporary use, and that can build our culture and our identity around the place. Vacant land reuse, as we've discussed in um, Cleveland and in Youngstown, and was the basis of a lot of the charrette work that I did uh, as a graduate student. I think that this changing seasons um, phenomenon is another facet of our identity that we need to take on with as much gusto and creativity as these other issues. Um, So that's how this cold uh, project started which stands for the Center for Outdoor Living Design. You know, it's a cute acronym. Uh, I think it's cute, but <laughs> uh, cold. Uh, the the purpose of this that, again, was started in 2013 was to inspire designers, planners, city officials, residents to think more creatively about their winter season. That's, that's really simply what we're about. And there's a few ways that we address that that I'll get into. Um, why is this important? Three, three main things. Uh, I, I think we need to understand better. One is uh, in terms of economy. There's a book that some of you may have read by Ed Glazer, uh, The Triumph of the City, and there's a section there where he talks about depopulation in cities, and he uh, refers to the average January temperature as one of the leading indicators of depopulation in the country. You know, So when you hold other factors equal, it's actually uh, a more reliant indicator of depopulation than education levels in fact. Now there's ways that you can debate that and say, okay, what's up with new york that's cold too but again it's holding other things equal that that january average temperature can apparently seems to dissuade people from sticking around in places Um, either way i think we can all agree that we know somebody that just hates the winter and they're out of here and because of air conditioning in the south uh, it gives people the option to go down there next in terms of health uh, seasonal affective disorder Is a serious issue. This isn't something that just makes you feel like you're in a bad mood for a few days. This is something that's a serious health uh, concern, and the stats I think are striking that 10 to 20 percent of the national population is affected by seasonal affective disorder. So this is a national population. This includes the South. You know, this this includes Hawaii and Florida and all those places. So given all those people, still 10 to 20 percent of the population is um, affected by it, and this can lead to things like missing doctor's appointments not visiting friends and family not checking in on your older relatives to find out if they're healthy or not Uh, people um, people's health drops in the winter because they're less active they stay indoors We know that leads to cold symptoms and all sorts of things because you're just staying inside circulated air within your room so um, we believe that this is something that can be addressed through uh, design making places more accessible safer uh, keeping walkability a priority throughout the year and then lastly culture just creating places that have a vibrant identity. We hear a lot about creative class and creative cities and so forth. And I think um, a, a huge area of opportunity for this in cities like ours is the winter season. If you think about moving the the ends of a spectrum, you kind of shift what normal is, right? We all kind of think about that in other domains. So if we think the kind of cold weather climate throughout the year, if we can make that more livable, more interesting, The center shifts, and more people are willing to go outdoors when it's 50 degrees, 60 degrees, right? So um, what is a winter city? There's um, a whole host of strategies that you might see. Um, You know, some books, not many, actually, but a few on winter cities' design. And this is a term that you might come across uh, frequently. So the definition of winter city is uh, a place where the average January temperature is below freezing, 32 or 0 degrees Celsius, you know, if you're in Canada. Um, in Cleveland, that average January temperature is 28 degrees, so that would, um, by definition, we're a winter city. Um, there's a book that I co edited with Brad Valtman called uh, Coldscapes Design Ideas for Winter Cities, and one of the essays in that book was written by Patrick Coleman, um, a planner and uh, founder of something called the Winter Cities Institute. And so I've kind of broke down some of his recommendations after you know years of study uh, focused on retail districts. Uh, so kind of addressing that first issue of economy, why is this important? Well, a lot of businesses kind of drop off sales for the winter season. There's a bump sometimes for holiday shopping, but that kind of consistent um, kind of background sale number drops in the winter because people aren't outdoors and you don't see people active on the street so how do we address this? Um, One is kind of understanding what are the positive aspects of winter and recognizing that in fact there are positive aspects of winter some of them might be outdoor recreational opportunities people that just love being outdoors uh, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, snowmobiling, ice fishing snowshoeing, increasingly urban snowshoeing is a trend just the natural beauty, the winter tourism, special events and festivals that give a unique identity to a place Um, using snow and ice for civic art and then opportunities for innovation this is a place where businesses can grow if they start addressing these needs it might be certain heaters for outdoor service dining enclosures for outdoor spaces so if you have an existing business that provides rentals you know kind of opening up that division of your business that caters more towards winter sales could could really benefit your business at the same time we know that there's negative aspects there's management costs for snow shoveling and the reason why people just kind of until someone bugs you, I'm going to kind of let it pile up. Uh, healthcare costs. This is something it's auto-related. We know there's more traffic accidents and pedestrian accidents. People that feel people walking in the street because the sidewalks aren't shoveled, and drivers feel really stressed out about that. People stop riding their bikes because they don't feel comfortable riding in the snow. Seasonal effect, seasonal affective disorder, as I mentioned, um, again, uh, difficulty and mobility. For seniors and disabled, so it's a real equity question it's kind of striking when you think about it that we're so focused on ADA accessibility uh, before something's built, but then during the winter time it's kind of like eh. <laughs> uh, you know it's not our fault maybe it's uh, you know it 's an act of God that the snow is there, so that's not our fault, but that's really not true it's an act of human so we've made a conscious decision not to shovel or deal with the snow when we should. Um, Outdoor activity for many people is limited, so again, health kind of declines and people get back out and work out in the summer, but during the winter, they're less active. Uh, Heating costs, and then just the sort of monotony that kind of wears on you, right? That gray, the monotonous cold, the white color, you know, it's just um, psychologically a problem, too. Psychological health gets impacted. So what can we do to respond to it? Um, There's some basics that... it's it's important to get into place. There's a lot of basic uh, responses that I'll present here and then we'll get into some more maybe I think innovative um, cutting-edge ideas but one um, you know there are interior pedestrian systems that have worked in some places but we know that they've also been heavily criticized because they'll take Pedestrian activity off of the streets and into kind of like people call it the gerbil tunnel or the hamster tunnel uh, up in the air, which also limits the people that feel comfortable going into those places. They're sometimes hard to figure out where they are. Um, so you don't get that kind of uh, reciprocal benefit of seeing it, this is an active place. Um, there's planning approaches that people could take that um, actually. Enhance retail sales that get people outdoors, that supports your city year-round. So all the hard work that we do with banners and advertisements in the spring or summer kind of drops off. Kind of if you think about uh, kids learning all year, and then the summer, it's almost the opposite. They forget everything they learn. you got to restart again next year. Well, if we didn't have that huge break and restart, it would be more consistent, and we wouldn't have to maybe invest as much to get people active if we continued it throughout the winter. Uh, Promotional events are huge um, to show people that we're open for business. It doesn't have to be... Uh, large-scale events it can start small in a concentrated location that's well advertised and it can build an an identity that this is a year-round destination especially in some uh, retail districts lighting adds warmth and comfort um, especially on darker days so instead of thinking about lighting as only holiday lighting that has to be seasonal and we all kind of get irritated when that neighbor leaves their Christmas lights up too long. If it's framed as seasonal lighting, it doesn't have that same feeling like, okay, get rid of this thing. Um, And if any of you visited um, many cities in Europe, you know, having been to Paris a few years ago, and Italy, even, um, you know, northern European cities, for sure, there's a real attentiveness to lighting. There's lighting designers that focus on the lighting for civic spaces, and I think that's, again, an area of innovation in a lot of US cities. Uh, Street furnishings, that the materials and locations are the appropriate materials, that they're not uh, the metal that gets really cold and you don't want to sit on it. Using more wood uh, treated materials that are soft, maybe colors that are bright and poppy that against uh, a white background look really appealing. Um, Recognizing that winter biking is becoming much more common um, and people are willing to do it if they have the confidence that the bike lanes going to be plowed in the morning before i go through the trouble of putting my clothes on you know so there's communication systems that are part of it not just having the street plowed because in reality it may be plowed but if someone doesn't know that it's plowed and they're not confident that it's plowed they're not going to ride it right so there's an integration of um, actually doing the process but then communicating uh, confidence and reducing the risk um, and i'll come back to that this question of risk is a is a huge one for winter um, maintenance must be a priority for walkways and parking lots Um, anecdotally something that i find really frustrating in cleveland is um, with uh, some of the schools there's a a if not a policy to not place uh, landscape medians in parking lots with trees because they're afraid of snow plows hitting the curbs right so as a result of I would say the incompetence of the drivers we're just not going to have trees in the parking lots where kids are walking and people are going through every day and and that's because of the winter situation. I find that unacceptable. Like that's not a good answer. That that's not good enough. We have to find a way to deal with it, right? And other cities have dealt dealt with it. The issue is we don't see it we don't perceive it as a problem. It's not a big deal, so it's easier to just push off the side. I don't think we can do that anymore. Um, and then lastly, you can consider snow melt systems. Um, a lot of places like Holland, Michigan, Racine, Wisconsin, and Anchorage have snowmelt systems in the sidewalks where they melt the snow. And this isn't somewhere that you, you know, roll out for the whole city and you know, kind of dig out all the sidewalks, but if there's certain areas where we know there's more foot traffic potential, again, it deals with that risk. You're managing the risk that people think, if I go there, am I gonna slide, am I gonna slip, is it icy? If they know consistently, every time I go, there's not gonna be snow there, then it significantly increases the amount of people using it. So in some places it's worth it. Um, so kind of breaking out some of the main kind of chunks of winter design considerations. Um, there's uh, basically um, seven of these main areas. One site design from the get go. If you're on a design review committee or you work for the city or planning, you know what direction are the buildings facing? This is kind of like architecture 101, but it's easy to forget it. And my argument is that this is really important. If you think about what side is even the swimming pool of some building developments, I see them on the north side of buildings. It's all gonna be in shadow, not gonna be a pleasant space. Let's just be aware of our uh, sun direction. Same goes for winter. I think of East 9th Street in Cleveland. And I think almost all of the public spaces are on the north side of the building. And it's not no wonder they're not really used because they're in shadow of the building, which is different than shade from a tree, it's a very different quality of light that you get in that space, but it's on the windward side and it's in shadow all the time, so I think just being intentional about where you're kind of focusing your energies on a space that makes sense from the beginning is important. Building design, as we know, uh, lower story buildings, two story, maybe four or five story buildings, um, you know that gets you the density that you want in most places without getting the, the building shadows over the entire street. Um, and getting step backs in places so you can get sun into the street is important, not only for wind purposes but also for sun access. Uh, road design: Are we designing our street sections to accommodate snow uh, snow piles in places? Uh, it's expensive to get the snow um, dumped into a truck and then hauled off somewhere else. Some cities do that. You know, New York does it. Really narrow streets; you got nowhere to put the snow. But if we don't have the revenues to kind of pay for that sort of maintenance are we designing the street section so it's easy to kind of put the snow in a a landscape median and actually creates a nice buffer between someone riding a bike and cars parks and town squares you know are we connecting the retail districts um, so that they can be used year-round you know we don't have to make this everywhere again it's the idea in the winter we're the place that we prioritize these uh, strategies so that we can get a year-round activation Uh, Using hillsides for sledding or bike paths for skiing, Um, I did a project in Cleveland around a TOD project um, with new housing, a new rapid station, all this stuff. And I'll tell you, the thing that the residents were most excited about was a simple idea to build a sledding hill where a hill already existed. It was just pruning some of the trees back, putting a bench there, and a sign that said sledding hill. And everybody loved it. They're like, why didn't we think of this? This is the best idea. There's no place for kids to go sledding in this certain neighborhood. And the neighborhood's known for its topography and views of the city. You know, So it's like, let's connect these together and think about the winter. And now it's turning into that kind of locus of community activity throughout the year You know, because of it. So it doesn't have to be expensive. It's just kind of thinking about it with a new lens. Um, pedestrian circulation just prioritize the segments for snow removal that you know consistently will always get plowed by a certain time this might be working with the business improvement district to coordinate it It might be working with residents Um, some cities have um, they don't pay for the snow shoveling for private residences but they serve as the matchmaker they have a website up where people can volunteer to be on call to plow someone's driveway and then People submit their addresses if they're you know, elderly, maybe they have uh, mobility issues, and the city is just the website that makes the matchmaking. through. They vet the people on the list, and then they coordinate themselves to get out there to someone's house to plow it. There's a Snow Angels project like that, I think, in, in Chicago, but a few other places. So there's different roles that the city and other people can play to just connect the, the needs to those that are willing to provide the, the service. Landscape vegetation, are we thoughtful about what plants look like in the winter? Do they get color or is it all the leaves falling um, in some places? That's a good thing because you get sun access onto the building, but there may be places where you get uh, greenery throughout the year. Uh, Materials and aesthetics, again, like we mentioned, lighting treatments, getting more lighting on architectural elements and buildings throughout the year when it gets dark early. Um, Are we using wood or polyethylene or vinyl-coated materials that don't feel awful when you sit on them during the winter all right so that's kind of an overview of the basics um, the things that we should all good winter cities should apply and just be consistent in their application Um, but in order to kind of go beyond that and kind of looking at the literature I found that there's a lot of these good basic things out there but you know what makes this exciting like what's gonna spark someone's creativity to go beyond like how do we push this further and for that reason we started this cold scapes um, project, and there's a website at um which has um, an archive of the projects that we've assembled through competitions and other projects so far. Um, the first one was in 2013, where we had a great jury together of uh, people from across the country, many different time zones. Um, um, Asekari Mortensen from Snoweta in Oslo, Norway was on um, the jury, and uh, people submitted their projects um, that gave us an innovative kind of position in winter, you know, what's next, what uh, can really transform this time, at the same time, something that um, is is doable, you know, not just a flight of fancy that is never going to happen, so we tried to get a balance of that, and we had over 80 submissions to the project, Uh, 15 different cities submitted, and 13 countries, and these were the winners, uh, Second Hinterlands, uh, Polar 77, and The Freezeway. We also had a list of honorable mentions, again, to kind of encourage uh, people to think more broadly about it. We didn't focus just on architecture. It wasn't just on landscape architecture. We had a, a range of design professions represented in the projects. Um, and I was proud to see some local Cleveland um, submissions to this as well, which showed that we're starting to think about it and kind of inspire this creativity locally. Um, out of these submissions, which we had in 2013 and we did again last year in 2015, uh, these are the kind of six big ideas that Um, I pulled out that we're we're coming out of the work relatively consistently, and then I'll go into examples of each of these in a moment. Uh, One, snowscaping, the idea that you design snow as a workable medium. You get this free stuff (laughs) all the time. Let's use it. Um, I think of it sort of like water. We used to think of water as a pain in the butt. Like, let's just get rid of this as fast as possible. Let's engineer it off the site. But now we're thinking about water as an asset like how do we celebrate it how do we get people to touch it how do we get people to see the uh, hydro- hydrological process in place through our parks and our um, buildings similarly i think we can take in uh, snow into account that way because it is water just in a different form next reframe um, these austere winter landscapes as environments for personal reflection as all cities uh, tend to move more towards activation vitality those are good things but we also need to recognize that to be a holistic human being, you need times of reflection. You know, when you're constantly on your phone or you're constantly consuming, you never have time to step back and think, uh, reflect on what you're doing. And I think the winter provides that. You know, historically that's when people would write, you know, they'd kind of get in their cabin and, and produce work that then you celebrate the rest of the year. Um, next, innovate mobility systems to maximize year-round use. Uh, we talked a little bit about that, so this is across the board for public transportation, biking and pedestrian and, and automobile use. Uh, Fourth, celebrate unique atmospheric conditions and this joy of ambiguity. Well, this basically mean when the snow falls, you know, kind of erases boundaries and it's kind of amazing phenomenon. Um, How can we transform that into something appealing, not just frightening or scary or uh, an issue that needs to be um, um, removed, but something that we can actually integrate as a design experience. Fifth, uh, creating urban micro nodes for high-impact, temporary outdoor experiences. Um, essentially, we need to recognize that you're not going to be able to make every space feel active and fun in the winter. As I think of the mall in Cleveland, it's on the windward side of the lake, um, you get got lake winds in there, it's a huge open space. To think that we're going to get a bunch of people hanging out there uh, is is probably unrealistic and that's okay. It, it works great in the summer and maybe a corner of it, a part of it, a subset could be a high impact sort of active area that we can get some wind protection around it. Um, next, responsive environments, uh, embracing this change maybe with kinetic or movable, uh, adaptable elements. The idea is you know, how do we, just as our cities are changing and transition, maybe in terms of population, in terms of their demographics, uh, the form, can we Im- embed that in our identity and make that appealing? Um, the weather, the seasons change, um, that you don't know exactly when this event's going to happen, but there's still a sense that it will happen, and I'm ready for it. There's a sense of anticipation for the right conditions to happen, and that's when the event will be triggered. You know, there's, there's a way of maybe building that identity um, and connecting those issues and turn them into a positive All right, so some examples of these. One with snowscaping. This was one of our winners from the first year, second hinterlands. Um, As you can see in the image, maybe it's a little hard to tell. There's a lot of, um, you know, white piles of snow. The idea is a kind of far-fetched one, but it could be applied in smaller ways. The idea that after a blizzard or snowstorm, do we have to plow everything immediately? Or are there places that we can designate as kind of um, these fun uh, festival areas with huge piles of snow that maybe are coming up on a building or in a parking lot or an area that people know as soon as the blizzard happens that's where it's at and people are prepared for it Uh, it doesn't mean just letting everything go it could mean intentionally plowing snow in a certain way to make piles but you sort of celebrate the fact that this huge um, arrival of snow has transformed your city in a magical way some of these again are are fanciful ideas of you know places across the world you know in uh, Red Square with uh, piles of snow Mm -hmm. or in uh Um, In uh, New York City where I think on top of the the Washington Park, uh, there's glaciers or or huge piles of snow. Those might be provocative and unrealistic, but again, if you kind of think about them scaled down, they are possible probably, um, you know, using these piles of snow as different landforms. And the thing that the jury uh, recognized as... Uh, really interesting in this project was that they created a language, a vocabulary, a taxonomy for different snow forms, as we do for buildings or as we do for other um, types of features. Um, the premise is if we have more words for something, then we might be more creative with it, we know how to use it, so um, instead of it just being a, a mound of snow, which is kind of like a mound of snow, that's, it, that's what it is, <laughs> if it, maybe it's a peak. Maybe it's a mound, maybe it is a dune. What's the difference between a dune and a mound? The, the, uh, the plain, uh, the island, the cliff, the mesa of snow. You know, so by having um, a more nuanced language around these kinds of environments, which can easily get flattened into just like it's snow, uh, we can work with it more creatively. Um, one architect and landscape architect that has done this in fact is uh, Sergio Lopez Pinero and he's uh, at the GSD, the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, and he was the Olmsted Fellow a couple years ago. Uh, His project was uh, called Olmsted's Blank Snow, and this project took place in Buffalo where he worked with the Parks Department to intentionally plow uh, snow into certain mounds to create unique landscapes that people could inhabit and use in new ways. Um, This on the left is actually a study model he made um, using salt. So for me, as an instructor, as a, design uh, professor, I'm also interested in this medium. Like, how do we, what kind of materials do we need? What kind of processes do we need to to design more creatively? Uh, As a student designing a a, a winter uh, environment, if you can't even design a winter concept, you're not going to design a winter product. You know what I mean? Like, if you're more comfortable building a model that incorporates snow, if you are more savvy to how to render with snow... It helps you design with snow rather than, what is often the case is a landscape architect or designer will design an environment given um, the ideal conditions of summer, and then they'll they'll make a winter rendering of it with snow on top of the stuff that they've already designed, right? And that's not the same as what I would call a a real winter rendering, because that is about showing the unique characteristics of the design concept that address that condition. So um, in in uh, Sergio's project, you know, he documented this process of the snow plows in, in unique ways, uh, mounding snow. And as I think about this in the future, possibly with autonomous vehicles that are GPS controlled, we may have more ability to kind of uh, design as if the cars are our paintbrush in some way, and or the the, the trucks are a paintbrush. So I think it's an interesting scenario in the future. Um, so as I said. This may not be totally out of uh, the realm of reality, and in fact, uh, we saw an example of this at MIT last year. This is, these are actual photos from the MIT campus where uh, they had a huge snowstorm in Boston, and the campus was plowing all their snow into one uh, large mound and dumping it over there, and it became to be known as uh, the Alps at MIT. And it's kind of remarkable photographs like how high this mound is, but students went up there, people were found uh, bringing their skis Skiing down the hill, sledding, uh, but it created an identity, a buzz, it was a point of activity, people went to this place and and socialized, you know, but uh, again, it shows us that it is possible to kind of use snow in a a unique way. At the same time, we know that there are some challenges to this sort of thing becoming um, commonplace. And I'm, I'm glad to see the law director here, right, uh, a huge element, a critical component of all this winter design thinking is legal issues, managing risk, right? I mean, as you see some of these, I'm sure you're, <laughs> you're, you're starting to sweat a little bit just seeing, you know, oh, man, it's that city property. How are we going to, oh, someone's going to, one person breaks their ankle and, and it's over. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I don't want to dismiss those. I think we need to take that on and address the legal issues with as much creativity as the form. Um, and there are ways of doing it if we if we think it's important. We can you can write a contract for anything, right? <laughs> or you can um, or in Canada. I know it's a different legal system, but it, there's more of a culture of posting Risks and you know enter at your own risk and very clearly here's what could happen to you But we're, we'll let you make the choice of what you want to do next and it's a way of of, of enabling uh, the variety and fun and the thrill of a city uh, without making the choices for people and um, maybe that's a direction we can go little by little especially in winter cities um, another great project here Simon Beck is kind of known for these extravagant very detailed uh, winter drawings just snow drawings that are made by walking out into the landscape um, you know these examples are really large spaces but I can't help but think of large vacant sites that we have in Cleveland I'm sure you have in Youngstown that in the winter look like this. It's a blank white canvas. No one's probably walking across it at all. Could those be uh, designed, a graphic put on it, and now with uh, video drones, with all sorts of uh, cameras that give you this view, it makes it very uh, worthwhile, I think, and meaningful to think about um, larger scale drawings or graphics made on this blank canvas of snow. Um, Within our own work, uh, Dominic referenced this briefly, but, We've uh, been working with youth in a couple neighborhoods, uh, one in Cleveland in the Buckeye neighborhood and one in the Moreland neighborhood in Shaker Heights, to train youth to become placemakers, to learn how to use uh, chop saws, uh, uh, screw guns, how to uh, you know, use a saw and to make their own public space improvements. When we started this project last year, we started in January intentionally. The first thing we did was build snow forts. You know, we bought gloves for some of the kids that didn't have them, and uh, scarves and hats. Uh, but then we went out onto this vacant site, uh, unused site called Brit Oval in um, in the Buckeye neighborhood, and um, encouraged the students to kind of let their imagination run wild. You know, and for many of them, they've never gone outside in the winter. You know, kind of making snow forts. It wasn't a thing they did. Um, but we had some things prepared, and you know, there's once kids realize that it's okay to be out here. Um, their imagination just goes crazy because they see snow as this thing that i can do all kinds of stuff with i can bury things in it i can burrow myself i can mound it up i mess up i can start over it's a great meme. it's all, they're like legos essentially if if you're prepared for it so i think there needs to be more of that uh, play especially at a young age so that kids have those memories and as they grow older they have a fondness of playing in the snow rather than only thinking about like how stressful it is to drive in the winter as i reflect on my own experience in winter I think I loved it up until 16. And I'm like, why is that? Oh, because that's when I started driving. And then once you start driving, it's like snow is not fun. Snow is the thing that can cause an accident. Uh, but before that, it's great. Walking in the snow, if you're dressed for it, especially in the era now of uh, North Face jackets and $100, you know, uh, high-tech, insulating (laughs) uh, clothing. Why aren't we outside more than uh, our grandparents? Uh, I think that's a kind of strange thing, so we're ready for it. But um, I think we just need to build the culture, and once it starts growing, uh, more people will uh, get on board. Um, The next point, reframing austere winter landscapes as environments for personal reflection. These are a couple projects that I think hit this great. Um, One is Kai uh, Salmela's project. He's from Duluth in in Minneapolis, and I don't know if any of you have been up there, but it's cold up there. I was there a couple years ago, and, um, you know, uh, it was 20 to below zero, I think, that whole week uh, with the wind chill factor. Um, But people were still outside, (laughs) used to it, and they said, look, we wouldn't be able to survive out here if it wasn't for a sauna. You know, and that's the thing that kind of keeps them going, that's the hope, you know, that's the identity. Um, You know, people did the coffee cup, throwing it up in the air thing, and it evaporates, you know, because essentially it freezes as soon as it hits the air, and um, it's an amazing place. But out of this environment, he developed this proposal for the Duluth Harbor Baths, which takes on the winter lighting that's, um, you know, this kind of angled, unique lighting in northern climates, and celebrated it in many different ways in this bathhouse project another one smaller scale of sauna but it's mobile so you can take it on the go maybe go out by the lake um, sit sit in there you're warm but you're still looking out and you have that visual contact to this landscape and I know in Cleveland and um, in all kinds of places along the Lake Erie um, getting that view of the lake is is kind of stress reducing it's like um, it's a healthy thing to do um, another project that is great, if you, any of you have been up to Winnipeg in Canada, um, every year they have a warming hut competition where they incentivize architects and other designers to fabricate these unique uh, warming huts. And they're very simple in concept, just a place where you can warm up, that's it. <laughs> and that's the only thing. But they take on all these different forms, You know, from celebrating the yellow glow of light against the blue background in the evening, the twilight, that phenomenon that humans love, it's almost feeling like you're around the hearth, Um, to unique forms that are kind of based on wind patterns and wind movement to you know the biophilic texture and quality of um, evergreens and trees in the winter you know it's something that we find very joyful and uh, uh, comforting so um, it could be these small-scale interventions that can really transform an environment here's another one that's in our book uh, that we published in in coldscapes uh, but it's called the higgy house and this project is basically half of a house that's a traditional Canadian, French Canadian home uh, that they painted in this bright poppy color. But all the elements in there, all the artifacts are iconic uh, French Canadian elements that you know people that live in the city would all recognize immediately. Like, oh, that's the rocking chair that we all know uh, and so forth. But again, kind of shifting it, transforming it through the color, through the form, uh, the fact that you have the indoors, outside, it's all a little unexpected and something that creates um, Uh, this joyful experience that you stumble across it. We really love that project. Um, Okay, so third this um, question of mobility. What are some of the projects that could celebrate it? Um, On the left here are two images submitted for the Edmonton Freezeway. This was a a proposal from a landscape architecture student uh, in Edmonton named Matt Gibbs for our 2013 competition and he created a video of this project and explained how it could work. Essentially it's Uh, a skating rink that goes through downtown Edmonton and around uh, the city and it it would run parallel to the to the sidewalk so people could use this to get around you know instead of riding your bike or something else you can use uh, ice skates and in Canada you know people I I hear it sounds painful but they're born with ice skates on Um, so this is a commonplace thing that people could use just an idea Um, turns out he got some attention for the competition and he was in uh, the CBC News and um, uh, a few other national papers in Canada about winning this winter design competition which led to some meetings with folks in the city which led to an advocacy group that really loved the idea and supported it and what you see on the right is the prototype of the project that was built this last December um, in Edmonton and the lights they see on the ground those are lights projected from the trees above public art along the way, and this groomed path that allowed people um, a uh, a skating line that went right adjacent to the downtown. So uh, the idea is that based on the success of this project that was done, this pilot project, that they plan to expand it now throughout um, Edmonton. So those are the kind of ideas that we hope will um, get catalyzed in some way and get some support um, and start little by little transforming the identity of the neighborhood uh, and the city on the left i don't know if anybody's been to maggie Daly park the new park in chicago i think this is a great project Uh, it's designed to be year-round it's not just the typical ice skating rink when people talk about winter city ideas for your downtown the first thing we often hear is a skating rink a skating rink Um, this example innovates beyond that to create an ice skating ribbon that goes around the park and within it there's a number of uses you could go uh, rock climbing and that's available in the winter Um, but it also works in the summer as um, uh, uh, a rink that people can use that's refrigerated and you could run alongside of it. So they're, they're integrating year-round use and adaptability into the project from the beginning. It's not a, a one-liner um, park, uh, ice skating rink that gets installed for the winter and then it goes away. On the right, uh, this phenomenon of cross-country skiing in the city and uh, snowshoeing in urban areas is growing. And on the bottom, you can see a photo, I think this is uh, Copenhagen, where year-round people are riding their bikes and looking fashionable, I might say. Um, you can dress for it. It's it's not something that's uh, impossible. Now, of course, in Copenhagen, they have the bike infrastructure to make it feel safer, and that's something that needs to go hand in glove with this sort of um, uh, recommendation. But another part, is you can see on the left, this wayfinding marker that um, tracks how many people have Rode their bikes by, and that's a way of incentivizing people to ride more by building in that feedback loop. Um, you're you're incentivized to be contribute to something bigger than yourself. Um, in addition, with mobility, you think about public uh, transit, the issue of kind of sitting outside in the cold. There's a few ways that people have addressed this. Um, on the left, some people recommend these blue lights that give you the uh, vitamin D that you are missing throughout the year. I don't think this is really useful in public spaces. It turns out you need to be in front of that blue light for like an hour a day, and not many people are sitting outside this, you know, three inches away from a light waiting for the bus, hopefully not. Um, so maybe people can do that on their own. But outdoors, um, it's become a trend for uh, businesses and advertising agencies to kind of install these. Um, heating lamps that align with their marketing strategy so they pay for the installation in some places that you know again you get the benefit if you're sitting out there and it's advertising for the company Um, celebrating the unique atmospheric conditions um, you know it gets foggy hazy visibility reduces is there a way that we can celebrate it Um, the example on the right is a proposal for downtown cleveland where uh, if you see that picture people do that all the time they stand on one of those um, Sewer grates that gets the steam coming up. They don't always smell bad. <laughs> Sometimes it's just it's just steam and it's fine. So it's better than standing outside where it's colder. The idea is, could we control those in some way with a, a little uh, vapor uh, nozzle that's connected to a computer controller and actually shoot it out in spurts that are you know choreographed, maybe with music, but uh, it could be with lighting as well, so that we kind of see these as these um, small lily pads to get people across the city. Um, another example from Cleveland on the left are these pods that are elevated in the air that give you a great view of the lake along the lakefront, kind of like these glowing orbs um, that again celebrate that interface between the frozen lake and the city. On the right, uh, Studio Rosegard, this is Dane Rusegard's, uh shop uh, out of Denmark, but he has some great public art that focuses on lighting, it's interactive public art pieces that are uh, meant to be used year-round in uh, edmonton they have a project called illuminite which is just one small alley it's not a huge stretch of property but it's a city-owned lot where um, they give $200, It was, I was surprised how little money it is, I believe it was $200 at the time, maybe it's more now, uh, to an artist to build, fabricate, and install a light display. So by getting 8 to 10, 12 uh, artists installing something small, it really transforms that alley and becomes a destination along a retail corridor. People are going to restaurants, they come out here, take a little stroll, go to another, you know, maybe go to a bar. But um, the projects are relatively low tech but high impact through lighting. Um, the next point was these micronodes, these high-impact temporary outdoor places. One of the, uh, the winners from 2013 is Polar 77. And This used shipping containers to create a really uh, enclosed wind-protected location for events and uh, combined it with a very specific recommendation for a plant palette that would have colors throughout the winter. Um, again, it's um, something that gives us a little bit of, um, um, you know, um, Calm, you know, instead of thinking we're going to transform this whole huge area into something, uh, you know, full of people, we can start off small. It can be a small area, just select the right location that's wind protected, maybe based on the buildings that we already have. Is it on the windward side or is it wind protected side? Um, Is there sun access? And go from there instead of kind of working uphill uh, to create a space from scratch that is really uh, difficult to activate in the winter. Right. This is an example. I don't know if anyone's heard of this the current Festival in Cleveland, in a Slavic Village. Um, as some of you may know, and as actually was mentioned yesterday as uh, Melania Trump spoke, that uh, as she, being of Slovenian descent, that Cleveland is the largest Slovenian community outside of Slovenia. Uh, and as such, there is an event started a couple years ago in the St. Clair Superior neighborhood, uh, not in Slavic Village, sorry, in St. Clair Superior neighborhood um, that Builds off of a tradition in Slovenia, uh, this current Ivanje Festival, which is a Fat Tuesday festival, their, their version of it where people dress up in these big like monster outfits to scare off winter, you know, and there's a it's probably has some fertility roots in it and so forth. But uh, in Cleveland, we kind of made it our own by having this traditional dress. It connects to that community that used to live there and people that still live in the neighborhood, but also bringing in marching bands and like local schools into the process. So again, it's it's kind of remixing the past and making it relevant to today. But re- reminding us that you know winter isn't something that just started recently. We've dealt with it with a long time, and some people have some great innovations um, that they've developed that we can continue on. Um, a smaller project is uh, in Ohio City neighborhood in Cleveland. There's a subset called Hinchtown that's a more recent kind of development. Uh, but in Hinchtown, they started a project called the Hinchtown Higgy. It's just an event that happens uh, once a year, and it's uh, simple in concept: in a parking lot. Have a fire pit, have some music, fire truck—I mean, a food truck—and you know, lo and behold, hundreds of people show up to hang out with their friends around the fire pit. Fire is an amazing attraction for people, um, and it's a way of socializing, keeping up relations in the winter, so that it doesn't have to—you know—you don't have to wait six months to restart it. In the bottom right is something I, I kind of uh, came across when I was in Winnipeg but uh, they have a group called the Real Men's Choir and this is a group that, um, you know, they sing in the winter, sing outdoors. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's more about a programming idea or like a social group that can continue throughout the year that um, sort of reiterates an identity. You know, we're willing to be outdoors. This is part of our tradition and they sing at events uh, in public spaces year round. Um, also, you know, it could be exhibits presentations, just reminding people, showing them examples of what could happen in other places. So in the top left, an outdoor exhibit that traveled throughout Europe that showed photographs of people cycling in Copenhagen throughout the year, just kind of showing people that um, it's possible, people do it (laughs) all the time in other places. On the bottom right, it could simply be an outdoor exhibit, like use your public spaces as a place that's lit, that has an exhibition that makes people feel comfortable walking through it year-round. Um, also, small, super small things that restaurant owners can do, just providing blankets in your outdoor seating. Um, doesn't mean someone's gonna be out there when it's 20 below zero or even freezing temperatures, but how about 40, 50 degrees? Are people willing to sit outside and maybe have a coffee? Yeah, it turns out that people in other countries uh, are willing to do that. And even in the US where it's happening on the, on the top right, that's my wife and um, I think this is in Chicago, a, a restaurant that we had that had blankets outside. You can get them dry cleaned. It could be branded with your company. Uh, in some other places, they have like deer blankets. It's actually like, deer skins, and again, it kind of aligns with their identity. In the bottom left, that's in Copenhagen, and you, you may not be surprised to know that that happens on the southern exposure side of the, of the canal, and on the northern exposure side of the canal, there's no one sitting outside. So it's also, where do we prioritize our outdoor seating? Is it on the sunny side of the street, or is it just random? Maybe it needs to be coordinated to have on the, the sunny side. And now kind of wrapping up in the last point, um, responsive environments. Um, can we make mobile architecture, facades, things that are moving part of the identity of the place that adds some whimsy, adds some um, um, novel, novelty experience to the space, but actually is also functional? this is an example of um, these kinetic louvers by a student actually designed these Tyler Short where if you can imagine it I don't have the video here but the louvers starting to move on the bottom left continue to ripple up all the way to the top right so when the Sun is at a certain angle the louvers are oriented to provide shade and then another angle it provides wind uh, protection and sunshade another way. So um, beyond the specific execution here, which you might say, well, good, you know, I hope they work in a hurricane, <laughs> um, which they might break off for that purpose. But um, nonetheless, I think it's a great example of the kind of innovation that thinking we can have to um, have our buildings and our architecture actually respond to conditions and being more smart, maybe being more aware of their surroundings. Um, an example from our recent competition is the eddy. Uh, this project is a proposal for a bridge in uh, New York City, or actually in Minneapolis, where the louvers on the side of the bridge uh, adjust based on uh, wind um, detection modules that it has along the way. So if the wind's blowing from one side, they'll close to create a, a louvered um, a wall there so that people don't get blown off their bikes as they do apparently um, in this location. Uh, and then on days that are sunny, you can open them up on the other side. So again, it's just kind of integrating some smart technology so that you get the benefit of views when you need them, but on the other hand, you get wind protection. A uh, student on the left designed this project for downtown Cleveland where um, you're using some of the thermal pipes, that, um, some of the steam uh, pipes under the city. Um, And kind of hacking them to create a warm microclimate within a park in downtown Cleveland So he was careful about selecting the site where you get sun access the buildings adjacent to it create wind protection But then by pumping some of that uh, steam in specific locations You can get a warmer environment that could support different plant species that are not possible otherwise And again, it creates that urban feeling a really unexpected element um, through your walk downtown Uh, and on the right uh, top right, the idea of just using snow fences in creative ways. Maybe they're colorful, maybe they're arranged in a certain way that creates mounds and hills um, in a way that's intentional and playful. And the bottom right, uh, in New York City, transforming that um, ticket station, the, the grandstand, into, uh, in, in a Times Square into a sliding hill or something, again, that adds whimsy and something playful uh, to the winter streetscape. Um, MIT is developing something that I think is really exciting. Um, it's a motion-activated heating system that they have on display here in an interior installation uh, called Local Warming. The idea is that the sensors in the ceiling recognize when a person's walking by, and when they're walking by, they uh, activate the sun—I um, mean the uh, the heating lamps. So it's a way of saving energy because they're not constantly running when they're not needed. They're not generally motion-activated like lights are in some of our LEED-certified uh, buildings that you know, turn lights off if you don't move around enough uh, after five minutes. Um, this is a little smarter, and it's the opposite. It provides uh, heat uh, when needed. So I can imagine this application in some outdoor public spaces. If you're waiting underneath an awning and it's a bus stop, the heat doesn't have to run constantly like it does in some places. There's a hotel downtown that has these um, heat lamps underneath, and I think they're great to have them, but they're always, const- they're always running as well. But if they're motion activated, they can kind of follow you. Uh, and that's the idea is that uh, throughout human history, humans have brought the heat source with them, and now for the first time, the heat source follows the humans. <laughs> um, okay, and then lastly, I'll show this project that uh, we built back in 2013 with a few students. Uh, which we call the Snowball Pavilion. This was an intervention in Playhouse Square in Cleveland um, that was designed and fabricated and installed by our students. Uh, I helped out a little bit, but um, they uh, built this pavilion and the idea was that when it snows, snow accumulates on it and creates an igloo and you can walk inside and it serves as an outdoor exhibition space, which is where we actually displayed the projects from the first year of the Coldscapes competition. Uh, But in the summer months, it serves as a sunshade you know so it protects the sun but wind can still blow through it it addresses one of the big concerns in uh, an urban environment but of safety so the way that these louvers are oriented you always get a view inside you're never going to be surprised by someone hanging out around the corner um so uh, this is a project that we installed and we actually moved it to another site in cleveland unfortunately uh when they finished um trying to install it at the other place they broke a piece so we don't (laughs) we don't have it to use right now but uh, we hope to uh, work on a project like this again that uh, may be transferred to another location okay so that's that's pretty much it for me um, from the big ideas that I wanted to present so again the recapping uh, the snowscaping reframing outdoor winter landscapes as personal reflection spaces mobility systems need to be innovated Um, celebrating these unique atmospheric conditions, create urban micronodes, and and explore these responsive environments uh, for architecture and public spaces. Um, So after that kind of um, presentation of some ideas and hopefully provocative, maybe um, um, idea generating um, thoughts, I'd love to hear from all of you what you think, what's relevant to Youngstown, maybe what's already happening that just needs to get, you know, the flames kind of, um, um, you know, turning it into a a bonfire from a a small flame. Um, And, you know, what can be done this year? What can you put on Dominic's task list uh, to get accomplished in the near term? Because it's July, you know, it's six months out, this is the time that we should be planning for the winter, although it may seem depressing, we just want to focus on the summer, but (laughs) Those of us that are action-oriented, we start planning now to get things done and celebrate six months from now, right?